Welcome to the Security Studies Podcast at Georgetown University. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeffrey Palmer, and for episode 40 of the Security Studies Podcast, I met with Professor Ben Buchanan to discuss cyber operations and AI. We start covering Professor Buchanan's background before diving into cyber operations. We discuss the many types of offensive ops and a quick case study of the Ukrainian power grid hack and defensive ops and the challenges therein. We then discuss the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, a major center for AI research and innovation at Georgetown University, which Professor Buchanan has helped create. That dovetailed nicely into our discussion on AI and national security. We covered the basics of AI, what do we mean when we say artificial intelligence, before covering its strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in a national security context. I hope you enjoy this lightning-fast episode with Professor Ben Buchanan. Professor Buchanan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, thank you. Let's dive right in. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, uh, what experience you draw from in the courses, uh, and what brought you to SSP? My background's a little bit all over the place. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of time on technical challenges like many people. I wanted to make video games when I was a kid. Then I came to Georgetown as an undergraduate, and at that point I decided that this technology stuff was cool, but it didn't really matter as much as foreign policy and international affairs. So I studied that both as an undergraduate, I studied Arabic, studied abroad in London, studied abroad in um, Egypt, and... Then I was an SSP student right after undergrad. And it was there that I started to begin to to think about maybe I can combine my interest in technology, which had been dormant for a little while, with its interest in international affairs. And as I was leaving SSP and went off to to do my PhD, as I was looking for a PhD question, I I started to think a lot about the intersection between cybersecurity and geopolitics. Great. And you uh, got your PhD at King's College? That's right. I was a Marshall Scholar, so I went to graduate school in the United Kingdom, and I got my PhD at King's College London in War Studies, where I wrote about the intersection between cybersecurity and international affairs. Wonderful. So we're here to cover two of your courses, uh, and we'll break them down as such. The first being Cyber Operations. Can you provide a brief overview of the course and what you hope students will gain from it? And uh, if you expect students to come in with some sort of technical background to to be successful in your course. So first things first, no technical background required. We created this course in the spring of 2019. It is one of the two optional core classes for the technology and security concentration in security studies. And we call it cyber operations very deliberately. We have courses, other places have courses on cyber strategy, one of the big picture ideas of theory and doctrine, how they relate to what happens in cyberspace between nations. And we have courses and other places have courses on technical pieces of cyber operations, how do um, nations get what they want at a very technical or tactical level. I thought we needed to have a course in the middle that split the difference in some sense between strategy and tactics and looked without getting too far down to the technical weeds at how nations achieve what they want to achieve, um, how they engage with one another, not just at a 30,000-foot strategic level, but also at a five or 10,000-foot operational level. For students of security studies, this distinction between tactics, operations, and strategies is is quite familiar. Um, It's a little bit less well-developed 
in the world of cyber operations. So we wanted to create a course that, that focused on cases that actually happened and what they can tell us about this new environment of international competition. Great. And I really like the way you've broken down the course, which is uh, in two, three, maybe four parts. The first being introductory concepts, just familiarizing your students with just a baseline. So we're on the same page. You go into offensive cyber operations, I think, mm -hmm. defensive cyber operations, and then finally, uh, how those operational concepts fit into a strategic picture. Um, so I don't want to get into the those baseline fundamentals uh, for the purposes of our conversation, but let's jump into offensive cyber operations. What does that mean exactly? Essentially, when we talk about offense, we're talking about taking one's own malicious code and getting it into a target network or onto a target device to have some effect that you want to have that the owner and operator of that network or device doesn't want you to have. This can be extracting information from the targeted system. This can be attacking the targeted system so that it doesn't function. This can be manipulating the data on the target system so it functions in the way that you want and not how they want. There's lots of possibilities, but they all fall under this rubric of offense. So that, as you said, is a key portion of the course where we look at some big cases of offensive operations and how attackers have carried them out. Again, not just a 30,000 foot strategic view, but to see what are the steps that, that nations go through when they carry out these operations. Um, we look, for example, at the case of Stuxnet, a very well known case of cyber operations in which um, attackers made way using a, a bunch of different methods to the Iranian nuclear facility. They then spread their code around the nuclear facility. They studied the nuclear facility, gathering information, how it worked, and ultimately how it would break. And they developed custom malicious code to launch an attack against that nuclear facility, Natanz. And this, is, this was a, a watershed moment in the history of cyber operations on the offensive side. It has been followed by other intricate, interesting offensive attacks, such as the 2015 and 2016 blackouts in Ukraine, which yep. again shows a very high level of sophistication to have a physical effect with a cyber capability, and attacks that probably are less sophisticated but still notable for geopolitical affairs, like North Korea's attack on Sony in 2014 or the Iranian attacks on the oil company Aramco in 2012. Yeah. And when we talk about the sophistication of these attacks, it's not just that they're complex, but it's that uh, they leverage different tools and skill sets from exploiting human weaknesses or conducting social engineering in some degree, all the way to, uh, to delivering malicious code. But talking about Stuxnet, I'm not as familiar with it, but as I understand, this was like a real multi-stage choreographed uh, uh, and choreography, I think, is the word, right? It, it's a uh, the timing and the, the cadence uh, is important. Um, no what, doubt. No what doubt did we learn that. from that? I think one of the things that an operational study teaches us that a strategic study might not is all that goes into carrying out a cyber operation. Yeah. I think it's what you're getting at with your question here. Um, what goes into developing malicious code what goes into doing reconnaissance of the target network? What goes into making entry into a target network, particularly when it's a hard target that's not connected to the internet? 
once you're in a malicious network, how do you spread your code around to get to the destination that you want? Once you're at the destination that you want, how do you have the effect you want to have? Do you want to be detected? Do you not want to be detected? In Stuxnet's case, it seems they did not want to be detected. They wanted to have a covert capability. All of these questions are the kinds of questions we talk about on the offensive portion of the course. Yeah. And, and in my view, all of these questions are the questions that we need to answer and we need to, to understand before we go and try to make cyber strategy. Yeah. Um, and I think our strategy will be better if we can start with an operational frame. And too often, we take strategic concepts that are familiar to us, like deterrence and the like, and try to port them onto this new area of competition, cyber operations, where the concepts don't fit as well. I think a lot of times we need to work from the operations first and then move back up to the strategic level and get to the concepts that do fit. How do we learn about sophisticated operations like Stuxnet? Like as as researchers, like how does that ever come in front of us? One of the most remarkable things about teaching the cyber operations course is that we get to talk about these particularly intricate, expensive, often intending to be covert operations between nations, yeah. not too long after they happen. And a big part of the reason for that is there's a, a tremendous private sector industry that studies how nations operate in cyberspace and publishes pretty detailed operational reports on what they uncover. So whereas many courses in the Security Studies program cite academic journal articles and assign them as readings, we do some of that, but we also assign this new genre of literature, private sector industry reporting, that sheds a remarkable amount of light on what nations do when they're trying not to get caught. And who are some leaders in that, in that space? Big, big leading companies are firms like FireEye, CrowdStrike, Kaspersky. At each of these firms, there are a number of top researchers who uh, have done a great job tracking nations' behavior in this area. It's worth knowing some of those researchers are now adjunct professors in SSP teaching other courses. Yeah. Uh, is it ever the case that nations would collaborate with these organizations to try to get to the bottom of some um, cyber operation, for example, in the case of Stuxnet, right? Iran might be a bad example, but would they ever reach out for assistance? I think it's probably fair to say that governments are customers of these companies. I don't yeah. know the details yeah. of it, but it's probably fair to say that, at least in the abstract, you can imagine that governments would be clients of private sector companies. It's also worth noting that governments, particularly advanced governments like the United States and China and Russia, have singles intelligence capabilities and intelligence agencies that ask many of the same questions yeah. that the private sector does, often with, with advanced capabilities. Um, they just don't publish the reports, typically. Yeah. And uh, before we jump over to defensive, I want, just want to cover the, the types of cyber operations that you cover in your course, because I think they're really interesting just thinking about them. There's espionage, wiper, meaning erasing data, uh, Critical infrastructure, so Ukraine power grid attacks, mm -hmm. theft, uh, such as the SWIFT uh, heist. <laughs> yeah, North Korea's bank hacking and cryptocurrency hacking operations. Yep, and then finally, election interference. Uh, these are all critical issues in this space today. We're seeing it happen around us, so I think it's really great that 
bringing these topics uh, and educating our future policymakers on. It's a pleasure. And it's worth noting that focusing on the operations can reveal similarities in those pretty disparate categories of missions. Obviously, there's differences in hacking a power grid versus hacking and leaking data before an election. But there are some areas where there's similarities. And by, by putting our focus on the operational level, we can learn a lot about how hackers perform um, these tasks from one operation to the next. In, in addition to that, help us inform our defensive posture. Exactly. Right. So moving on to some of uh, defensive uh, cyber operations, um, you cover in the course maybe f- four different topics being network defense, defending forward, counterintelligence, and attribution. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak a little bit about these? Sure. So what's striking about defense is... Uh, it's, it's a question of information and acting on information. So a lot of what we talk about in the beginning of the defensive section is how do you defend a network? How do you detect that there's an adversary in your network? And we think about different ways in which you can do that. You can use perimeter-based detection. You can um, use hunting teams where you, you look within your network um, for a sign of a compromise, not just at the perimeter, but within the network. You can defend forward, um, as it's sometimes called, try to go out and get intelligence or sometimes go out and attack um, to, to stop the adversary from making their way to your network. All of these are part and parcel of the defensive pro- uh, process. And that's something we, we cover in a fair amount of detail. And then there's these two other um, areas of operation, counterintelligence and attribution, that are important to defense. Counterintelligence is or taking this old model of how intelligence services engage one another, degrade capabilities, uncover each other, and ultimately gain the upper hand, and pointing that over to cyber defense and saying, how can counterintelligence methods, figuring out what the adversary is going to do before they do it, help us better defend networks? And attribution is a question that's as old as history, which is when something bad has happened, who did it? And, and how is that process similar, and how is that process different? in the arena of cyber operations than it is in other parts of international politics. Is it the case that attribution is often based on circumstantial evidence? Like, based on... I would say attribution is uh, often based on forensic evidence. Um, I think, in general, attribution by talented and capable actors is far better than academics give it credit for. And I think for a long time there was a trope that attribution was impossible in the world of cyber operations. And a lot of the research I've done uh, with my uh, colleague Thomas Ridd shows that's just not the case. And that attribution uh, it, it can be done by, by top-tier actors. And one methodology of pursuing the, the attribution of uh, an action um, is by following a Diamond model, is that correct? That's right. So the, the diamond model is a little bit more technical, probably more technical than we want to do here. But the mm-hmm. diamond model is really widely used as a guiding framework for attributing cyber attacks, particularly at the technical level. Um, Thomas and I have worked on something called the Q model, which is meant to be a little bit more operational. It, it draws on more geopolitical factors and the like. Um, but the diamond model, I think, for, for frontline industry and government folks who are doing attribution is, is probably the gold standard um, for, for that kind of technical investigation. 
Okay, so we look at these operational concepts uh, in the last two courses, uh, the last two classes of this course focus on um, how those operational concepts tie into a, it have strategic implications. What sort of strategic implications are we talking about? As I said, I think we get to different strategic implications and indeed different strategies if we have a different operational understanding. So one of the ideas that we can revisit in light of our newfound operational understanding is the notion of the security dilemma. And this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, the security dilemma in one form or another goes back to the ancient Greeks. And it's a notion that as you defend yourself, you unintentionally threaten other, others causing them to, to build capabilities and escalate, which in turn threaten you and you escalate. And in the end, you can, you can have a spiral of escalation, uh, sometimes even into conflict. And what's striking about the security dilemma is that it can arise when there's a conflict that no one wants. No one wants to have this kind of conflict, but through a series of misinterpretations, you can, you can get there. And there's a lot of historical support for this. And one of the questions I asked um, and I, I wrote a book on this called The Cybersecurity Dilemma, is can the security dilemma explain what happens in, in cyberspace? So not just as a tool of academic theorizing and the like, but can this be a kind of intellectual scaffolding for us to explore how nations play offense and defense? And, and my answer was yes, this is, this is actually quite useful in synthesizing a lot of these offensive and defensive operational concepts. I'll give one small example. On the offensive side, Operating in, in cyberspace is fundamentally different than operating in conventional space. The United States military can build a Tomahawk missile in its own territory and then at a moment's notice fire that Tomahawk missile uh, to any target in the world, sometimes even retargeting it in the air. That's not how cyber capabilities work. Cyber capabilities, at least at the higher end of capability um, and potency, are capabilities that um, are specific to a target they require a lot of reconnaissance of that target in advance. They require sometimes preparation in the target environment, or at least using information gained from the target environment. And that all takes time. Think about all the time and reconnaissance and code development that was required to enable Stuxnet. And one of the arguments that I make, and we discuss in the course, is once we have this operational understanding of how offense works, that is actually very different than firing tomahawks that can be easily retargeted does it lead us to a different notion of the security dilemma or a different notion of deterrence? Um, what are nations likely to think when they see you doing reconnaissance in their networks? Are they likely to assume you're setting up for an attack? And how can you convince them you're not? And so forth. And, and this is, I think, a very rich area of strategic exploration, certainly one that the United States government has started to talk about more with its defending forward posture, yep. um, but one that using this security dilemma notion and operational model people like myself were talking about five years ago. Right. Um, very interesting. So much to go into, but I, I have to go on to the next topic, which is your next course, which is artificial intelligence and national security. Um, but before going into the course, I want to talk about something that you helped bring to fruition here at Georgetown, and that's the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What's its mission? What's your role there? Um, yeah. yeah, so that's funded by a $55 million grant from the Open Philanthropy Project. It's um, 
think, if not the largest research gift in Georgetown's history, uh, up there. And it's born of a sense of urgency we all feel about the intersection between artificial intelligence and national security. And the way I think about this is that for a long time, AI was a scientific matter. And you can imagine universities like Carnegie Mellon or MIT being at the vanguard of AI. And then AI became a business matter, right? It's very big on Silicon Valley and places like Stanford were involved in it. Um, and now I think we're at the point where AI is a scientific matter and it is a business matter, but it's also a matter of politics and geopolitics yep. and national security. And that was the impetus for standing up CSAT, which is we need a place like Georgetown, which is you know, deeply steeped in this area of inquiry or international affairs and security studies to think about artificial intelligence and what it means for the world through that lens. And we've hired since January something like 45 people or so, um, depending on how you count. And I'm the, the co-principal investigator um, with Jason Matheny, who's the founding director and, and um, sort of does a lot of the, the, the leadership of it. And Jason's really terrific. And um, it's, it's been great to have it cross-pollinate with security studies. Some of the people we've hired teaching security studies classes, other more junior folks are enrolled in the security studies program. And there's a lot of, of, of rich cross-pollination there that I think benefits all parts of Georgetown and ultimately helps us better tackle these, these really hard and important questions. That's great. We thank you for bringing that here, the, here at Georgetown. So what is artificial intelligence? What do we mean by it? There's an old joke that once something... Uh, starts working, we stop calling it AI and we start calling it software. Yeah. Which is to say there's some notion that AI is always just a, just over the next hill, just a, over the next uh, the next software development, the next hardware development, next frontier. And there is some truth to that. When we talk about AI, we talk a lot about the, the current paradigm of AI, which is called machine learning. Yep. And this relies on a particular powerful piece of technology called the neural network, which is a essentially a software tool, a class of algorithms that has proven to be very robust and very powerful when combined with our current large data sets and our um, current very powerful computers. And this combination of data, algorithms, and computing power uh, leads us to the, the current paradigm of machine learning that, that we think shows a lot of promise and raises a lot of interesting questions. So through machine learning, um, computers can learn uh, basically optimization, right? It starts out pretty clunky and the end result is the thing you're looking for. Is exactly. that accurate? For many tasks, yeah. And we see um, this this process of iterative improvement that, that shows up on a wide variety of tasks from board games to self-driving cars to lots of stuff in between. Yeah, I was going to ask some current applications and then where you think things are headed. We've seen a lot of current applications that are particularly relevant to national security. So the obvious one is automation of, of weapons, right? Talking about lethal autonomous weapons, talking about um, autonomous mobility and the like. There's, there's plenty of obvious applications there. Less obvious but, but equally interesting ones are automation of cyber attacks. Could you gain speed and power in cyber attacks? Or conversely, could you get better at defending against cyber attacks? 
if you use this machine learning stack? There's a lot of open questions in that area. A third area of, of interest for national security um, is uh, the, the automation um, of text, of intelligence, of propaganda. OpenAI, one of the leading AI labs in the United States, earlier this year released something or showed something called GPT-2, which was a text generation algorithm where you'd give it a prompt and it would sort of fill out the rest of uh, what might come after that, that writing prompt. And this raises interesting questions um, about propaganda and like, could you automate online propaganda in a way that, that had an effect on elections or the like? So there's tons of, of near and, and medium term applications of artificial intelligence that I think have a, a pretty significant impact or could have a significant impact on international affairs. And what does the future hold in AI? Um, and what I'm thinking of is like China's application of artificial intelligence domestically and maybe outside as well, uh, and what that might hold for, for the future. These are the kind of questions that I would ask my students on a midterm or on a final yeah. because they're good questions. We have some data, but there's no one easy answer. And it would require a lot of wrestling and a lot of updating with new information. And I think that there are big questions in here that, again, we don't have answers to. Yeah. One question that was on last year's final and may reappear again this year is, does artificial intelligence favor autocracy over democracy? Right. And and is this going to be a key part of the relationship between the United States and China? I think, yes, it will be a key part of it. I don't know in what, what way it will break and what the net effect will be, but certainly my view is that, as I said at the outset, I don't think AI is just a subject of scientific or business inquiry. This will have very real applications and implications um, for some of the most important geopolitical relationships in the world. Do you feel that the United States is doing enough in this space to remain competitive in a in the geopolitical competition sense? No. I think there's there's obvious things that we could do that would enhance our capability in this area. The most basic one is getting and attracting the world's AI talent, of which is not very much, to come to our borders. Canada, the United Kingdom, France, China, all of these nations have pursued policies that aim to attract AI talent and bring them to the United to bring them to their countries. We have not really done that to the same degree in the United States. Despite the fact that this has historically been a strength of ours in attracting uh, foreign talent, our current immigration posture um, does not does not, in many cases, permit people who want to come and contribute to the United States to come and do that. So you're suggesting this is more than a public-private partnership problem. It is a like actually attracting the greatest minds in the space here. Attracting attracting top-tier AI talent is fundamental to improving a nation's performance in this area. It's fundamental to getting better algorithms. It's fundamental to getting better at managing data. And it's fundamental to getting better at developing new hardware to run the algorithms. Yeah. So this is kind of the, the foundation on which everything else rests. Sure. And again, nations like Canada and the United Kingdom have had tremendous success building up AI mm-hmm. research centers and AI industries within their borders um, because they've, they've pursued a smart policy of 
of getting top tier talent to, to go there. I think Canada was one of the first governments to establish like an artificial intelligence strategy or mm-hmm. national strategy. Yeah, um, and th- there's a big difference between having a strategy and acting on it. So the United States has an AI strategy, and I I would say um, we oftentimes have not acted on it in a, a whole of government kind of way. Uh, at least not to the degree that the fellow democratic nations like Canada and the United Kingdom have, and, and almost certainly not to the degree that a nation like China has. Yeah. What are some challenges or limits to artificial intelligence? There's enormous technical challenges in this area. And in, in fact, one of the biggest things that we have to contend with in the academy is making sure we're grounding our analysis in facts and not hype. Yeah. Because there's a lot of hype out there. So... Let's be clear, artificial intelligence capabilities show enormous promise and indeed enormous current power, but there's a lot of things that have to happen before we get to some of the crazy uh, further out there projections. Not to say they're never going to happen, but there's a lot of questions about whether our current machine learning paradigm is sufficient to guess a general intelligence what else is going to matter in, in moving us in that direction, how much computing power we're going to need, for example. And it's really important that those of us who study the intersection of AI and international affairs make sure that we're keeping up to date on what actually is happening on the AI front so that we're better able to cut through the hype. This was a quick one. I appreciate you taking the time to sit with me and uh, to go over this uh, this kind of Uh, rapid-fire list of questions uh, on this podcast interview. For my last question, what is the greatest threat to U.S. national security today? This is obviously a very broad question, but I think that when I think uh, about this in terms of generations or in terms of several decades spans, we have to do a better job of understanding the intersection between commerce, technology, and democracy. And that has a bunch of different implications, but a lot of times I think the the areas where we really can get ourselves in trouble are areas where we don't understand how an evolving private sector and how evolving technology has national security implications. Arguably, you can argue that's part of the climate change discussion. It's certainly part of the cybersecurity discussion, which is what the director of national intelligence says it's the number one threat to the United States and, and has been for eight or nine years running. Mm-hmm. And it, it is probably the, the relationship between the private sector, technology, and government is the single most important thing in the artificial intelligence space. So as sort of a broad abstract answer, if we can get folks in government who understand industry and understand technology, and if we can get folks in industry who understand government and understand technology, and if we can get those right technologists to the United States, we'll be in a lot better shape to, to, to manage whatever strategic challenges come. I don't think we've come close to doing any of those things yet. Seems it might be easier to do it in an autocratic government than in a democratic one. Sounds like you've just answered my final question. <laughs> Thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. The Security Studies Podcast is hosted at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. For more information, go to css.georgetown.edu. Thanks for listening.